Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Brought to you in part by International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 107, Randy Nelson, The Wildest Hunt. Randy Nelson wrote this book, The Wildest Hunt, which is a conglomerate of stories about Game Warden from across all 50 states and the Canadian provinces. It's a unique cross-section of funny and serious stories uh, that you can, yeah, enjoy. Sit down and enjoy these these stories uh, and give a taste for wildlife, law enforcement across North America. Thanks for sitting down with me, Randy. I really appreciate it. And you can tell by this podcast that Randy is very articulate and a very good speaker and is very knowledgeable on all of the issues surrounding conservation uh, and wildlife. So he would be an excellent speaker if you were looking for one, for sure. So I'm going to continue reading uh, the reviews. So I'm going to start off with a new one, May 4th. And I don't believe I did this one because I think the only one I've released in May so far hasn't been our Memorial Podcast. And with the Memorial Podcast, I I hope you noticed a difference. I don't have my lead-ins. I try to limit 
my advertisers as much as possible, but by contract, I have to do some. Uh, I certainly didn't do my normal advertisers, which I hope they appreciate that it's a memorial podcast and I want to make it different and I want to make it so you notice it's different. And that's how I like to do that memorial podcast. Um, This review starts off inspirational. That's a great title, inspirational. Wayne and John do an excellent job of bringing a diverse group of individuals together that share the same passion of conserving and protecting our natural resources. The podcast feels more like old friends sharing stories around a campfire rather than an interview. As an aspiring conservation police officer here in Virginia, I surely appreciate the work that goes into bringing these stories, experiences, and lessons learned to a platform available to everyone. Wayne, I am currently a Hunter Ed instruction here, Hunter Ed instructor here in Virginia, and would love to contact you with a Virginia CPO for your podcast. Keep up the good work. That's great. I appreciate that, and certainly Virginia is one of those states that I haven't highlighted yet, and would love to for sure. Um, this one comes out of Ohio. I'm trying to catch up on all the podcasts. Ugh, a hundred plus episode takes a while. Continually flying the flag and spreading the word. Your podcasts are informative, educational, entertaining. In your free time, keep an eye out on the Sullivan kids. So this comes from a, a fellow game warden in Ohio that uh, just started listening and who's become a really good friend and I appreciate him. And we are going to be hearing him on the Warden's Watch podcast at some point here. We already uh, canned an episode with him. So thanks a lot and thanks for flying that flag. And I hope everybody's sharing it with uh, people of like minds. If you enjoy Warden's Watch podcast, my guests are your friends would do the same thing. I think they would join it. Birds of a feather have a tendency to flock together. That's such a true statement in all kinds of levels. So if you like Warden's Watch, just share it with your friends. The more we grow, the better off we are, uh, for sure. Enjoy this episode with Randy Nelson. Again, a very dynamic individual who uh, took that opportunity during COVID to pen a lot of Game Warden stories and put them in the book and then donate half his proceeds to the Game Warden Museum, uh, which is great. And another podcast in our future to come about the Game Warden Museum. So that's on the horizon at some point as well. Thank you very much for listening to Warden's Watch Podcast. Enjoy. On this episode of Warden's Watch, we have Randy Nelson of Canada, former game warden from Canada who has just finished writing The Wildest Hunt. And I shouldn't say just finished because it was released in Canada. And now we're going to be releasing it in the United States, huh, Randy? And uh, pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it was a lot of fun putting together. It's, uh, I think, something that people are really going to be enjoying. And and it would be shocking for some people, even even wardens. I was shocked at what I was able to find. I, crazy. I, I bet you were. I bet you were. And that's that's half the fun, isn't it? Putting it together? It is. It was like a whole bunch of investigations and I didn't have to do all the court work at the end. It was it was it was a lot of fun. Each uh each little story has its own investigation and officers were so accommodating and helpful mm. and enthusiastic about telling their story. Yeah, and there's a little bit of pride, you know, being in your book. Uh, I'm in your book and I'm uh, I'm pretty proud that I'm in your book, so <laughs> I, I think it's a, that, that's a source of pride for me. 
It, it is. It is for a lot of guys. And it, I, I never really thought of it that when I wrote my first book. But uh, afterwards, you go, yeah, it is It is pretty neat thing to have. And uh, there's uh, one officer, um, I think it was from Wisconsin. He ordered 100 copies of the book. Wow. He said, I'm, I'm going to give this to everybody I know. He was just <laughs> so happy. And it was a one of those cases that was a career you know, three-year investigation at the end of his career. So it was it was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So that was an epic cl- case for him, and it got published. And I don't blame him. I'd be giving, giving out books too. Yeah. Well, let's start with your background before we get into the book, because uh, there's lots to talk about here. I was a, a farm kid from Saskatchewan. Middle, grew up in the middle of nowhere. No running water, outdoor toilets, no central heating. Sort of a simple, simple life, and it really helped set me up for the challenges that uh, being a fish and wildlife or game warden officer can can be. I, I really, really enjoyed my upbringing. I went to school in Saskatoon, took a two-year course, and became a conservation officer in northern Saskatchewan for about a year before I got a job offer to move to British Columbia and become a fisher officer with Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So that's sort of... How I got out here, um, when I got out here, I shortly after I got out here, I got married. My good wife, Lorraine, from Saskatchewan as well. And we um, we lived in Vancouver to start with, and then we moved up north, which a lot of young people do because you can't afford housing in the big centers. So we started working way up north in a community called Terrace, and I took up running. Now, I took up running because I knew we had to go through some training at the RCMP depot in Regina. And uh, fitness was important. And I took up running for two reasons. Lorraine was a very good cook. <laughs> and I, was, I put on a whopping five or ten pounds. <laughs> and uh, so I took up running because it's something I could do everywhere. And I never took up running thinking how much fun it would make my work. And that, that, was, that was what was so much fun. Because salmon poachers, where, what a lot of them do is they'll sneak down to the river at night in the dark and use nets to catch fish. And when you come along and sneak up on them, they have a tendency to run away. They get rabbit. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, I, I I literally, there were some nights I'd be working with somebody and a guy would take off running and I would go, Yahoo! And I'd just run behind him. I, I'd never try to catch him right away because I'm not a physically big guy. I learned to just run him until they collapsed. <laughs> and I never once got in a physical confrontation with anybody I chased. And I chased hundreds of people in my career. It was so much fun. <laughs> and, you know, it, fitness is something I think everybody out there that has in any enforcement capacity, uh, being fit is as much of an asset as anything else you can have with you, maybe short of a dog. <laughs> I, I, I agree, but some of us just aren't runners, Randy. <laughs> no, no, I, I sort of became a crazy runner. I was addicted to it as much as I was as catching poachers. Yeah. So I, I've, I've run for 45 years, but I don't mean being a, being a marathon runner. You can do anything, go to the gym, do whatever, do something, you know, a few workouts a week is all it takes just mm-hmm. to give you that little extra edge. So when you need it. And the nice part about being a game warden, I, I could take a little hike, you know, and do a, do an hour in the woods a day and kind of target different areas to, to go for a little hike. And, you know, especially as a lieutenant, I, I try to take those afternoons and build that hour in because you're right, sitting at a desk kind of does what your wife does to you too. So if you don't yeah. build that in, you have a tendency to being a little rounder. Certainly, um, 
I think retirement actually worked better for me because I think I've lost weight since retirement because I got out from behind that desk as much as like more, a lot more than I did. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Some, a lot of people go the other way. They think they got time to sit in the couch and they do. And, uh, <laughs> My metabolism better... doesn't function that way. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't sit still. And that, that's sort of how I got going on this book. COVID, uh, the COVID shutdown is, you know, you're stuck in your house. Well, I can go for a run, but can't run all day. So I, right. that's when I decided to start this project. Um, yeah. uh, I just, I, I, once I got into it, I was immersed in it. I, I would start phoning people on the East coast when I first got up because it's late morning there and, uh, worked on five or six stories a day, uh, at a time. And I was working 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, it just, I couldn't stop. It was addicting. Wow. It, it felt like work again. It felt like catching poachers uh, because of the enthusiasm of the people I was talking to. It was it was a lot of fun. I, I guess I haven't really said what the book entirely what the book is, and it's hmm. it's a collection of poaching stories from game wardens and fish and wildlife officers. I have a, at least one story from every state in the U.S. Wow. and every province province and territory in Canada. There's probably upwards of 150 stories in there, and of course some. Some uh, states have several stories, but I just, that was my goal to have at least one story uh, from every, every uh, state and province. And I talked to literally hundreds of officers mm. uh, via phone and by email. And once I got the story that I wanted to, to write, then it was a matter of connecting with an officer involved. And that was a little tricky at times because mm. a lot of them don't know me. I'm from another country and you're going to talk about details and investigation that they're involved in. And what am I going to do with it? You know, there's, there's some hesitancy and there was only three stories in the entire book where I wasn't able to make a connection just because nobody really wanted to talk to me about them. A couple of more politically charged stories. And, you know, I, I can understand that, but overall people were so enthusiastic and uh, willing to share. Uh, so I, I, I listened to their story, then wrote it up, and I, in each and every case, I sent, except the three, I sent the draft copy back to the officer involved just to make sure I had it accurate. You know, I write it in my words, and mm -hmm. it's their story. Right. So I tried to make sure make sure I got it right. No, that's admirable, and I'm sure everybody appreciated it because everybody wants their story correct if it's going to be told, and no matter what, yeah. whether it's print form. Audio, yeah. visual, you name it. We, we want the, the correct version out there because so many times, you know, the incorrect version is out there. Wow. Yeah. And I know in one case, I might, I've got some details mixed up. They aren't important to the storyline, but I've got to talk to that officer because I think I, when I, when I look back through my notes, I think I got one that was, when it went to editing, something was changed slightly that was different, but we'll get over that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite story in the book that you can share? Oh, man, uh, there's so many. I, I I tend to like the funny ones, you know, because, and that's what I tried to do in this book, too. You could write poaching stories, and it's a pretty morbid topic. There's mm -hmm. so many. It just It would be depressing to read. So I tried to inject it, a little bit of humor into some stories and tell some of the funnier ones, too. And there's... One of the one of the ones that I've told retold quite often is a a young officer from Oklahoma. He's uh, 24 years old and single, and he goes on the dating site Bumble and puts all his information on there, but doesn't say that he's a game warden. And in that website, I guess the girl has to make the initial move. And he's at home one night, and he gets a ding on his phone, and this girl says, "Hey, I'd like to meet you." So they're chatting back and forth, texting back and forth, 
And he says, what did you do? What, what are you up to? And she says, I just shot a big old buck. So he immediately thinks that some coworker is spoofing him. You know, he just said, oh, this is too funny. So he plays along. And as the night goes on, he realizes it's not a joke. This, this young lady has shot a deer at night with, with spotlights on her parents' property and didn't have a license. <laughs> like, you can't make that up. So it gets better. So he, uh, he doesn't know exactly who she is or where she is, but through the course of the night, he figures out where she's living, shows up on her doorstep with another officer uh, with a search warrant. He seizes her gun, her deer, gives her a $2,400 ticket, and then he tells her how he found out via the dating site. And uh, he, she was shocked, of course. He leaves, leaves that alone, and he said, I had my 15 minutes of fame. It was on every national news network in the U.S., like <laughs> CNN, Fox. This was just the funniest story anybody can imagine. But uh, what he said, that, that all sort of passed over, and it was I think it was several weeks later, this young lady calls him up and asks him out on a date. <laughs> like, good, o- good Oklahoma girl, didn't hold a grudge. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> And she went so far as to invite him to her parents' place for Christmas dinner. <laughs> and I said, you didn't eat anything, did you? <laughs> but uh, he said that that's part of the story was never told to the national network. So there's, there's things like that, that people getting this book will, you may say, they may say, oh, I know about that story. But in a lot of these stories, there's details that have never been told. And that's what makes, should make it so interesting. Uh, absolutely just it's like um we, we throw the video on our patreon site and we have this conversation like we did earlier and there's so there's little tidbits that we talk about that never make the podcast but there's a little extra for somebody that wants the whole story if they want to get on the patreon site so and that's kind of why we do it i kept noticing that we're talking a lot about different things and uh it was it was entertaining and uh boy that's that's yeah, that's probably one of the best stories I've ever heard, Randy. <laughs> well, another really good one. It's fairly short. I'll tell you this one too. It's an Alberta officer it's with Environment Canada. So he's a wild, called a wildlife officer. He's out checking duck hunters and he comes across a cornfield with pivot irrigation, a big round circular cornfield. Yeah. And uh, he hears some shots. In the center of it, there's a little puddle. And he, and he, with his binoculars, he sees ducks falling out of the sky and, oh, there's people hunting. So he drives the perimeter, finds several vehicles parked, and recognizes one vehicle as somebody that he really wants to get. Uh, it's one of those guys you just is on your bucket list, and you're going to get him as many times as you can. So he he can't go into the cornfield because they'll see him coming. So he climbs a tree, with looking with his binoculars, and he recognizes the guy that he's after, and they have a dog with them. Uh, the dog's you know retrieving their ducks, and as he's up the tree, they they start packing up. He sees them packing up, and he sees the guy that he really wants chuck a duck into the cornfield. So he climbs down out of the tree and casually stands by the truck as these guys come out of the cornfield. They all have exactly their limit, as you would expect. And the guy that he's after, who owns the dog, he says, oh, you guys got your limit. That's awesome. He said, is your, your dog a good dog? Oh, he's a great dog. He's really good at re- retrieving. He says, do you mind if we go for a walk and you show me how good he is? So the officer takes this poacher back into the cornfield to the approximate location where he saw him chuck the duck. And the officer tells the dog to fetch. The dog brings the duck back and drops it at his owner's feet. So he got busted by his own hunting dog. (laughs) 
I love that. <laughs> oh, man. You oh. can't make that up. No, you can't make that up. And, and that was great thinking on his part. Uh, that's oh, just, he, you know. He's a really, like one of those guys, you know, I actually hired him as a fishery officer years ago, uh-huh. and he's one of those guys that every organization wants. They just they think at a different level. They're a they're way ahead of the poacher, and they usually get the best uh, the best cases because of that. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt that's a that's an epic case for sure. Uh, so the the wildest hunt uh, isn't your first book. Yeah, yeah. My first book was about my career called Poachers, Polluters, and Politics, and it covers my thirty five year career, and it's a collection of crazy, hairy, funny stories uh, throughout my career. And I, I had a lot of fun putting that together. It was well-received, and the publisher wanted me to do another one. So I came up with this idea, and it's, uh, it's coming out in the U.S. in, a, in, in a, probably mid-April, I believe, is when it's going to be coming out. And uh, looking forward to seeing how it does. I think it should be in the hands of anybody who enjoys the outdoors. Game wardens, of course, will like it. But I would really like to see this get into the hands of the public because one of my goals in this book is to get people thinking about poaching that's going on everywhere. Mm. Like there's been dozens of books written about African animals. And if you ask the average person about poaching, they think of elephants and rhinoceros. And, and, and that's important. It's really important what's, uh, to keep, get on top of that too. But I want people to understand there's stuff happening around us right. and, and they can do something about it. In a lot of these stories in this book, it started with a piece of information from the public. And nothing, no piece of information is too small to pass on. Uh, that's the point I'm trying to make, encourage involvement. And the ideal situation I would be if I could get this into the hands of judges and politicians and prosecutors. Mm. Because uh, anybody who's read this book so far that I've talked to, they, they are blown away at the breadth and the magnitude of poaching. And that's, that's the only way we're going to get uh, on top of this if we get prosecutors and politicians and judges to understand this more fully, because they are the ones that ultimately make the case. Like in my career, so many people would take a case to court and the judge would treat it in a, in a, in a small way and not, not impose a fine of anything that was, would be uh, acceptable to us. And there, there's a reason for that. The judges don't know how the breadth of the problem and it is our job or officers jobs to make sure that that prosecutor is well informed and in tune with what goes on and the judge and until the right information gets before the judge he can't make a he can't make a, a decision that's going to have a, a positive impact on the resources mm, so, so I'm, I'm i'm a big believer that we have to do a, a, as officers there has to be a better job done in presenting the case and the information and educating the public. Um, and that's what I intend to do this with this book. I have made a couple of political connections, I guess is the right way to say it, with this book already. And I'm hoping that that will lead to some positive things. So if nothing's too big to take on. You just right. got to believe it and move forward. No, I love your attitude. That's That's for sure. And, you know, you're right. I always say, if you see something, say something. If you're out there in the outdoors, and I just took on the executive director spot at International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. So, again, that's, you know, way people can help when they don't really know how to help. You know, there's a membership level all the way up to corporate and, uh, you know, nonprofits. And if we all pull together, I mean, it's just what you said. 
It, absolutely. And, and good for you for taking on that. I, I, I was aware of that organization, but it's funny, my whole career I wasn't. It was when I was writing this book that I became aware of that, International Crime Stoppers. Yeah. And there's a good example of why don't we know about that? Yet we know so much about African animals. Mm. <laughs> and, and International Crime Stoppers does cover African animals, but we need to think of that when we're talking about our own backyards too. Right. And the, to be honest with you, the reason it's international is because of Canada, because we primarily focus on uh, North America. And when yep. we were changing the name around, we, we wanted to include our brothers and sisters to the north for sure. And yeah. so we, we made it international. Sometimes I think it'd be simpler just to go wildlife crime stoppers. But, you know, yeah. I wasn't that forethought of when we had that debate back then. <laughs> yeah. I think I... I think I have a chapter about them in my in my book because awesome. I wanted to give them some exposure and yeah. you know, let let them know, let people know who they are. Exactly, and you're you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it's all about: is uh, just letting people know how they can do it and getting the word out there. And it's your book, yeah. my podcast. It's communication. It's letting yeah. every officer know because you weren't aware of them and they were have been around since uh, the '80s. So yeah, and a good example of. You know what, uh, what? What a little piece of information can be important. Uh, I didn't know anything about cactus poaching. <laughs> like cactus poaching is big business in, mm. in in some states. There's been in some parks, one park in Texas, where this uh, particular type of cactus called the Living Rock cactus has pretty much been wiped out within the park. Uh, yeah. And what people would do is they pose as tourists. Take, take a backpack and a camera and you go around and take a picture of the cactus and when nobody's looking, you slip it in your pack. And there are international people that have made hundreds of thousands of dollars coming to North America. Uh, most, most of this cactus poaching is in the U.S. because that's where the, the, their, uh, the cactus they're after grow. But on the coast, coast of California, there's some cactus called the Dudleya. Uh, two people from Korea had 800 cactus plants in a van they rented. Mm. They, 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 so what, I guess what I'm saying is somebody walking down a park trail with a backpack and a camera could be a poacher. Yeah. You know, you just, just be aware. And if you see somebody that looks a little suspicious, uh, don't approach them, but get as much information about them that you can. Vehicle information. Everybody has their phone. If you can take a picture, just uh, it's those kind of things. Uh, and, and in that case, it was a concerned lady at a post office, an elderly lady at a post office saw this guy shipping a bunch of boxes to Korea. And that little piece of information resulted in a bust of a, of a major ring. You think cactus plants, How that's not a poaching incident. It is if it's making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. No, I love that and, with the TSA came out with see something, say something. And I that use is awesome. uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I use it in uh, you know, and trying to stop wildlife crime too. Say something, say something, because if you're an outdoor person, you generally have that idea that geez, this is something wrong about that person, or there's a big hole there, and he's got a shovel, and it, you know, he's just going out with a backpack, and he's saying "ouch" every now and then when it jumps over a rock <laughs> or something. Pat him on the back, and he <laughs> freaks out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but most people have that intuition going. Yeah, there's just something wrong about that situation. And and like yeah. you said, you know, just get enough information and then say something. Say something. Yeah. Hey, I don't know if this is a big deal or not. You know, get the the wildlife crime lines. Everybody in the U.S. has one. Everybody in Canada has one, whether it's an email, a text, a phone number. You can reach out and tell them, hey, I saw this. I don't know if it's anything. 
but you may want to know about it. And that's the beginning of how many cases we've had in our careers is just, uh, you know, the better cases are given by information because we're only one set of eyes and one set of ears. And you know. Absolutely. And, and, and so few of them out there. And one thing the people listening who are saying, okay, I'm going, I'm going to do something next time. If you get that piece of information and pass it on, don't be discouraged if it doesn't get acted on instantly mm. or because there are so few officers out there. They yes. may be not in the area. There's a lot of things that can happen, but don't give up. Keep, keep passing on information. Like there are, uh, if you, if you go out fishing or hunting versus driving down the road, like there are 75 times as many police officers in North America as there are game wardens. Mm. I, I went through all the stats, added it all up. So you have a one and a half percent chance of getting stopped doing hunting and fishing versus driving, driving down the road. So that's wow. spread pretty thin. Very thin. Uh, no, let's and, see. Oh, the other point we touched on there is, uh, or I, I, I wanted to touch on, is about the um, legal ethical hunters are the best conservationists. I've I've mm-hmm. spoken at a number of conventions and so on, so on, expecting a challenge on that statement, but legal ethical hunters are the best conservationists, and the reason is they're out there. They know the rules of what's legal and what's not, whereas the average layperson might not. And they are more connected to that, the fish and wildlife out there, and they want to protect it. What often gets, uh, what some groups don't understand is a poacher is not a hunter. And hunters get lumped in with poachers as being the problem. Mm. And and, uh, that's up to us and all the conservation groups out there to make sure that that point is made clear and the public understands they are not the same individuals. Poachers will try and call themselves hunters, but they clearly are not. No, agree a hundred percent for sure. And no, oh, I like that the the legal and ethical hunters are your best conservationists. No, I totally a hundred percent agree. And that's the nice thing about being a conservation officer, game warden. You know, ninety percent of the people that you deal with are really good people and have their heart in the right place. It's the ten percent that you're after and you're trying to catch. And but along the way, you get a lot of help from those people that care about their natural resources. Absolutely. Got to work together. Yeah. And a lot of these, you know, talk about the the organizations, you know, poachers. uh, I usually have other games. Drugs come into the poaching. um, You know, all kinds of other things. Where there's money to be made, they're making it, whether it's on wildlife or other things. And and I I talk about this in the book, too, is uh, wildlife fish, trees, plants, it's just another form of currency for criminal organizations. Whether it, If something's rare, somebody in the world will want it. Mm-hmm. And criminals will recognize that and go after it. There, there's a case in the book of uh, a guy from, I think he's from, uh, from South uh, Columbia area, I think. There's a, a shellfish called conchs, which are large large snail looking things and the meat of them was is highly sought after it's delicious and they've been over <laughs> overfished off the co- coast of us mm-hmm. so there's very few areas in the world where they're left and uh in in the book they talk about a story about a guy who became a quite a good smuggler of these conch shells from uh south america to the us he got caught once so he devised a, a method this shows you the extent that some people will go to he had a a shipping container full of frozen, full of frozen uh, conchs, conch meat that he shipped from South America up the East Coast, landed in Canada, 
shipped it by truck across to Toronto, then trucked it back down through the U.S. to Florida. He <laughs> took it on a round-the-world journey to try and avoid the authorities in Florida who would be looking for this stuff. Wow. And then he got involved in the drug trade and was shipping cocaine and was trading cocaine for conks. Uh, he ended up uh, having a large seizure of his cocaine uh, seized by authorities, so he was in trouble with the cartel, which is a very dangerous place to be. And he ended up in jail, which is probably the safest place he could have ended up. But yeah, there's there's organized crime everywhere. There's international things of all kind. And in my book, I talk about an international operation uh, done, I think it was 2016, called Operation Thunderstorm, where 92 countries participated in a one-month operation to just try to get a handle on what was happening out there in, in poaching. And they ended up, I think it was 1,400 seizures they made. There was 27,000 reptiles. There was four tons of pangolin scales, which equates to about 16,000 pangolins, uh, 48 primates. It, it was just a list. Wow. Like it, it sounded like Noah's Ark on, on steroids. Hmm. It, was, it was just such a long, extravagant list. Right. And that was in one month. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it's way bigger than most people think certainly that I ever dreamt of mm. so much stuff. Yeah. And remember there's what 75% more normal law enforcement than there are game wardens to stop that. Yep. Yeah. I love that statistic there. Cause that's uh, yeah, 75 times more, 75 uh, times more. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Not percentage. <laughs> so that's, that's makes it even a bigger hill to climb. And I certainly something you're aware of is the dangers of the, of the job. And I've, I'm aware of in my, my career, but, uh, Something that a lot of people don't realize is you have three to four times the chance of being of being killed on the job as a game warden as you do a police officer. Mm. And I have been challenged on that piece of well, there's you hardly ever hear about it happening. Well, yeah, that's because there's so few. Right. In the last fifty years, there's been uh, over a hundred game wardens killed in the line of duty, and they aren't always shootings. They're drownings. They're uh, plane crashes there's accidents but uh the statistics are there that's it's it's a dangerous job and we do a lot but of dangerous a- things i mean that's you know search and rescue missions we run airboats we you know all those adrenaline filled things game wardens do <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, which I, is probably I, why we do it huh, Randy? <laughs> I, I, I the peak of my career was uh, in a community called quinell in central bc where I was probably in my fittest too. I, I could run a 232 marathon and that entire community, it was socially acceptable to poach salmon. And I could not sleep. Literally, I could not sleep at night knowing there was poaching going on. And the first summer I worked there, I worked every hour of darkness except one night. I, I just could not stop. I couldn't sleep. I'd go catch poachers. I'd come back, catch a few hours of nap, go do some paperwork and get ready and do it again. And I think that's why I like hunting whitetail mm. because whitetail are one of the smarter cre- creatures out there. And it, it feels to me, it felt more fun catching poachers than it does getting a big whitetail. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of officers feel that way. The adrenaline rush, uh, you just want to, you want to do it over and over and get, get the bad guys off the, off the river or out of the woods, wherever they might be. hundred percent. That's uh, you just change your prey. If you're, I always hear that too from people. Oh, I would like to be a game warden, but I like hunting too much. I'm like, you just change your prey. Um, and, and that the title of the book, I 
I was thinking about some hunt and I couldn't come up with a title. And it was actually a lady at the at the publisher uh, at the uh, book company said, "Well, how about the wildest hunt?" I said, "That's perfect, but do you think that's okay? Because you know we feel that's what it's like, like a hunt." She says, "Oh, absolutely." So yeah. it was sounds like a Hemingway funny. novel to me. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah. I, I love it. I, that's exactly what it is for us: the wildest hunt. So I, yeah. I think that was, and I was going to ask you about the title because I think uh, titles have power, names have power, and uh, certainly uh, that that attracts attention on on all kinds of levels. When you talk about a wild, the wildest hunts, especially for outdoorsmen, because they can relate to that that chasing that game, like you said, chasing that whitetail, and now they see yeah. a book, the, the wildest hunt, and that just intrigues them to engage them. So I think you did a really good job in naming that, in order to get other outdoor enthusiasts to pick up that and start reading game warden stories and the stories about how we protect uh, their wildlife. Or and, our wildlife. I'll call it ours because it's ours yeah. too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and and I tried not. It's it's. Uh, I've tried to. I've had a few comment, good comments about it. People that have read it too. I give some history of how game warden work came to be, uh, right back to the you know, dark ages is where it started. And then I try in a lot of the stories. I try and inject some some bio- biological information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where people can learn something about the animals and the things that, that are being poached in the book as well. It's not just about t- catching the bad guys. I try to make a little bit of educational information in the book too. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, uh, we're kind of lay biologists. Uh, some of us are real biologists, for that matter. Uh, some of your Western states uh, require a four-year biology degree, and you pretty much act as a biologist, as a game warden too. And every game warden becomes a lay biologist because you're in that environment so much. And you know, I worked hand in hand with the real biologists quite often, and interjected my opinions and my feelings, and was taken very seriously by them. And you know, certainly accounted for some of their research. You touched on a point, key point of one of the things I try and spell in the book too is the importance of managers, uh, resource managers, and biologists to use information from game wardens. Mm-hmm. And I and I encountered this a lot of times with a lot of agencies where that does not happen enough. So you have people making decisions about fish and wildlife resources in isolation of the people that can probably provide you the best information possible and are out there dealing with resource more than anybody else. And I don't quite I understand why they are so reluctant in some cases to involve them in their decision-making. It, it's really sad. There are some places where it works good. Sounds like you had some good experience. I had a real mixture in my career, but it was like I had to almost kick down a door to say, hey, remember, this is, think about enforceability mm. when you're making some of these decisions. That's something that I heard over and over is a biologist will make and a scientist will make a decision that they feel is the right decision. And it probably is, but it can't be enforced. Right. Uh, and, and, and that happens far too often. And that's up to us, I guess, to try and deal with our own agencies. And I, I hope that some senior managers in agencies read this book, too, and, and, and pick up on that, that yeah. point because uh, we have to work together. Yeah. It's not that... Uh, you don't want game wards making all the decisions. Heaven forbid that wouldn't work. No, no. <laughs> but you want their information, their input. Yeah. And, and work together. 
I have the utmost respect for biologists for sure. But you, you touch on things that I preach as a podcaster and as a new executive director for International Wildlife Crime Stoppers is when you look at the total management plan that every nonprofit wants to do, every state wants to do, it has to have law enforcement within that plan or it's going to be unsuccessful. It, it, it's, it's doomed. Yes. It's doomed if you don't have enforcement. The best right. plan in the world, um, if you put uh, a speeding sign up on a highway and nobody ever, ever goes out and stops people, guess what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. People will drive faster and faster and faster. That's human reaction. You drive down the road and you see a, a police car, everybody takes their foot off the gas, whether they're speeding or not. Mm. It's that, oh, I, I got to make sure I'm doing this right because there's a police officer. Mm. That's what does not happen in the outdoors. There aren't enough of us out there. Mm. So it, it, that interaction that we have uh, is, is much less. So the, the risk of getting caught is much lower and people will poach. Like I, I found very, very few studies ever done on poaching. Yes. And I find that interesting. Uh, I found one from the 1950s in Saskatchewan, and I found one in the U.S. I can't remember the date. It was in the 70s, but, I believe. And was yeah, it Arizona yeah, or New Mexico? Yeah, I, New Arizona, I believe. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like I searched, I, I, I yeah. was on the internet. I have a copy a of that one too because I refer to that a lot because I don't think there's been one yeah. done since. Which I, and there was one supposedly in New Mexico. I was given a tidbit of information, but I haven't been able to track down. But why is that when everybody knows poaching is such a big problem? Mm. And here's my theory on it is people don't care in some cases or don't want to know. Right. Because if they, if they know how big the problem is, then they have to do something about it. And mm. it's, it's just, why isn't there some international, like this Operation Thunderstorm where they identified so much of a problem? We just don't try and address the problem as much as we should. Uh, the World Bank did a, study this isn't in my book because i i found it after i wrote the book but in 2019 the world bank did a study of the impacts of poaching and it's a really interesting read it covers international fishing uh, poaching of salmon in the high seas uh, uh, of all species in the high seas it covers uh, forestry like illegal logging operations and they estimate that if you combine all the value of the fish the trees the wildlife the job loss, the uh, and so on, the value is worldwide is somewhere between one and two trillion dollars of economic loss is being poached basically wow. worldwide. That results in billions of dollars of lost revenue from taxes and whatnot if it was done legally. Right. It was, and and you think why would the World Bank do that when the countries aren't even interested in doing it themselves? If the World Bank it's got the World Bank's attention, why doesn't it have everybody else's attention yeah because it has such an economic impact is why they wanted to know but mm-hmm. and and then i the, the thing i tell people with poaching you know wildlife it takes long a long time to to reproduce that so when you're poaching something it's just not you know it's just not going to get replaced tomorrow it's it could be a year it could be two it could be three and then the long-term effect are a population reduction uh, there's just uh, there's so many layers to taking out you know some of the best bucks in the world with reproduction you know illegally taking them at night um, yeah it just has such an impact. Well, like in, on British Columbia here, our salmon stocks uh, are really in bad shape, mm. and it's been a 
big combination of mismanaging, to be honest, too much pressure from commercial fishing industry. And that's mm-hmm. what often happens. The, the, the political weight, uh, even though a biologist and a scientist want to make the right decisions, they are arm twisted into making decisions that uh, for the benefit of industry sometimes. It happens in logging. It happens in fisheries. Uh, I'm sure it happens in, in, in most in most species that we deal with. It's really a sad state of affairs. You touched on one thing, uh, how much poaching. There, there, a, a story out of the Carolinas, Venus flytrap plants. <laughs> like they can't be that hard to poach, but they appear. Uh, they their grow size. Like about 100... <laughs> What's that? Depends their size. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a fly, you might not look at it. Yeah, that way. yeah. If they're eight feet tall, you might have a whole different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> they're only found in about a hundred sixty mile radius area in the Carolinas, oh, mostly wow. within parks and swampy areas. And over a 30-year period from, uh, I think it was 1987 to 2017, they feel 97% of Venus flytrap plants have been removed from the wild. And most of those within a park. Hmm. And well, that's another point, uh, is, is a sanctuary for a poacher, unless you have enforcement. <laughs> Mm. and that's that that happens yeah and, uh, they, those are being wiped out and, and that's happening with a lot of different species right there's some good stuff happening too yeah I so try to cover like, some of that and I'm, well. I'm talking your local parks your your national parks your state parks all of those are what you're saying are havens for poaching unless you have law enforcement yeah we have we have a case again this happened uh after my book was written of a couple of yahoos, I, I, I won't give their names because people will, they can probably search and find them anyway. Uh, one American and one Canadian who were on the TV show, oh, what is it, Alone, where they go out and survive in the mm. bush for days on end. Yeah. Uh, so this one American and a Canadian got together and they, they've got their own YouTube channels about bushcraft and survival. These guys are idiots. They, uh, they uh, did a 30 day survival challenge. Yeah. And I gagged my way through watching this thing. It's about two hours long, and I, I I ran out of I ran ran out of room on my page of the stuff they were doing wrong and illegal. Wow! They did this thirty day survival challenge, and a big part of it was in Banff National Park. Oh boy! In a freaking national park, they're in there cutting trees, starting fires, catching protected trout species <laughs> that are endangered, and eating them. <laughs> and 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 people will watch these clowns millions of viewers on on youtube they're making a fortune off of people being dumb mm-hmm. you know the only thing dumber than the than those two guys are the people millions of people that are watching them right and have uh, no just, idea no, yeah it's terrible no i'm <laughs> but uh, 100 100% yeah. agree but and the nice thing is you got some goals with this book too i mean that's when it's a goal oriented book i think uh it, it helps things too doesn't it it does. It does. Like I, I've spoken at a number of events now, and and it's it's it kind of taken off a little bit. These speaking engagements, and I'm 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 open to go talk to anybody. Mm. Uh, I want to I want to tell this story. I want to tell the stories of everybody, and the shock factor of the book will hopefully lead them to think about what I really want them to think about is doing something, mm. and and being aware of what's going on out there. And an, another goal, of course, is to get. You know the politicians and judges and and our systems to understand that the problem, because only when they understand the problem, will they probably will they move to try and address it properly. 
Right. And I'm also trying to raise some funds for the Game Warden Museum. In my first book, I donated all the profits to the Fallen Officer Fund. Mm-hmm. And that's for families of officers killed in the line of duty. And in this book, I'm donating half of the profits to the Game Warden Museum. I found by donating all the profits, it actually cost me money <laughs> so, so, because, because of the travel and everything. But, I totally uh, understand that with podcasting, believe me. Well, <laughs> I don't think I've run in the black yet, but my accountant says at some point I have to or we're going to be pulling the plug. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's too tough to spread the word and, and get people revved up enough to, uh, to help out for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's a passion though. I mean, I think we're both passionate about what we do and we're both doing the same thing in a different method. You, the written word, me, the spoken word, because my skill level I, I figured out doesn't, uh, doesn't apply in the written words. I'm not a wordsmith by any means. I don't think I'm a, a speaking smith by any means, but I will say the department trained me to be a communicator so all I did was build on that with my background yep. in the Operation Game Thief program and, you know, reaching out to, to tell people our story. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. I didn't know I could write. As bizarre as it sounds, like when I, when I retired, I, ha- I kept a personal diaries and I didn't have much detail in them, but I uh, decided I, I got to write these stories down mm. uh, for the benefit of our, our kids. I have three, three adult children now and I wanted them to understand some of the stuff we went through as a family. Yeah, and that was the goal of putting documenting the stories. And I, I sat down and, and, you know, a matter of two and a half or three months, I had written this manuscript, and had no idea it was a book yet. Uh, just shared it with a couple people, and and when I sent it off to uh, the biggest publisher in BC, I didn't know what to do about you know where else to go. And the, the publisher who's been in the business for forty years calls me up and says, "Randy, I I want to publish your book." And I was so shocked. I said, "Why?" <laughs> in that tone of voice. And, and that was his reaction. He uh, says, I've been in this 40 years. I've never had anybody ask me why they wanted, why I wanted to publish the book. And, and, and it was at that point that he, I realized that the writing style I have is something that people like to read. I don't even read many books, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> so I have, I didn't go in with any preconceived idea of how to write a book. But yeah. uh, for those, I, some of those officers who are listening that, are thinking they would want a story in a book, um, you know, yeah. I, I'm more than happy to, to hear them out. And, and I, you know, I, I've started a collection. I don't know if I'll do another book, but if I do, there's certainly more than enough stories to have really good ones. Well, we, uh, we to, talked about another book. funny incidents, Randy, and I think that would be a great book. I mean, my, my, my guys could tell you funny incidents about me. You know, I was running, uh, and I think of this one all the time because I was running the chase vehicle for a night hunting case. And guess what? They were on foot, and I was their only backup. And we had the guy, and they were shadowing him on the ground. But you know, it's 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 hard when you're on foot and they have a vehicle, so they're trying to shadow them. They called me, and I blew past the road that cut down into the field. But I knew if I cut into the field, I could cut into that road eventually. But if anybody's driven 45 miles an hour through a farmer's field, um, and it was just, uh, <laughs> it wasn't anything I was ruining his crop or anything, but I will tell you, it is quite a ride. Everything in my, my cruiser was like suspended in the air because I kept hitting bumps and, and they're hollering for me to hurry <laughs> up. And, 
And the funny part is this is all being done in the dark because I can't see anything. I, I, I have my headlights, but uh, so I get back on that road and I get down there. When we come up, it's now daylight and they can see my tracks and they all start laughing their butts off because I, <laughs> you could see where I totally blew past that road and cut right down through the field. And they knew how fast I was coming. And they were like, that must have been, a, my stuff was just trashed everywhere. You, every, you should have sent your bill to the farmer for plowing his field. Oh, my goodness. I was hitting every plow road there was. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And I looked down. It was only 45. But all, all I could do was to hang on and, and just keep that steady pace. And those guys, when they saw my tracks coming up through... In the daylight, they were laughing so hard, um, and and I, you know that I got a ton of those stories, and they keep coming out in these podcasts, and they'll continue to come out. But every game warden has stories just like that. I have a picture of them because I had to I had to drop th- uh, three guys and me. Uh, you know, I had to drop them off in my cruiser, so I had them all smashed in my cruiser so we could get down there and drop them off. We took a, a group photo of that, and that's an epic photo of us all crammed in a cruiser for the drop offs. Um. <laughs> yeah, like, like I said, I, I think that would be a, a really fun one to put together. And as you, everybody, every, every officer, every, every officer has those oh, stories. I I got one other short one. I, I just thought of that uh, is a is a really one. It's not hunting related, but it was a a uh, park warden in Jasper National Park. So uh, he told me the story. So they, this young couple, they're uh, out in their car and they drive into this area go down a hiking trail and they end up with their picnic basket and and a blanket so they spread it out in this nice nice uh remote meadow get their blanket out have their uh, having their lunch end up getting naked and they're they're uh so in touch with themselves that they don't see the black bear approaching and this black bear comes up and they panic and streak literally streak for their car <laughs> and they're standing by their car well, their keys are in the pants back in the meadow with the bear, who's having their lunch, just as a game or just as the park warden arrives. So here are these are these naked couples standing by their car, locked car, and their clothes are back in the meadow. <laughs> <laughs> so he did what most wardens would do. He helped these people out that were in a distress and yep. walked back negotiated the clothes away from the bear and uh all was good yeah oh man oh man everybody had a good story on that one (laughs) even the bear even the bear (laughs) oh that's great so uh the wildest hunt's going to be available here shortly in uh april in the u.s it's it's been released for about a year in canada Uh, about six months six months okay yeah and I, I, the, they're not a huge publisher, and they just wanted to stagger it, just so they wouldn't be inundated with uh, trying to promote it all at once. So mm-hmm. there's been a lot of promotion. Canada I've got some tremendous publicity out of it. You know, nice. Lots of interest shown. Uh, I, I know it's going to be uh, something that people will like to read, and in, in the U.S. as well. It just, uh, it's too, it's too. Uh, if you enjoy the outdoors, you want a book that's going to make you laugh and also shock your pants off. Uh, you're going to learn things about plants and animals that you did not know were being poached and all across U.S. and Canada. And the other thing you'll be doing is supporting the Game Warden Museum. So you can't lose. You can't lose. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, I just find it awesome that you took every state and targeted every state and get a story from every state. That's uh, 
pretty cool because that just, uh, again, it, it makes it personable to every officer within that state, which I think is really unique. Uh, so that's one of my goals with the, the Warden's Watch podcast is to get every state in there. Yeah. And it's, awesome. it's, it's not easy, but uh, we'll, we'll achieve nope. it. Uh, <laughs> as we go along and, you know, always making decisions, what to put first, what to put next. Like this is going to come out about the same time as you drop in the U S so intentionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if, and if anybody listening belongs to, you know, uh, some of the big, um, organizations like the national Turkey Federation or Rocky mountain elk or ducks unlimited, mm. uh, I, I've got a pretty entertaining talk. Yeah, that I can give give to send this message out there. Yeah, and you're that. you're a good speaker too. So I mean, if anybody's listening to this podcast, you can tell uh, Randy's very articulate and would be a great speaker. No. And I don't charge much. I haven't charged anything yet. <laughs> I'm just That's, trying to spread spread the message. Sooner or later, it gets a little deep there, Randy. I'll, I'll <laughs> That's experience <laughs> talking. <laughs> but again. No, I, when it's your passion, it's like being a game warden. It wasn't work. It was a passion. Exactly. Uh, we loved it every day. And like I said, I, I always tell people I can't remember all the bad stuff and I can only remember the good stuff. I lo- I, I'm sure I didn't love every minute of it, but I enjoyed my career to the point where I'm, I'm telling everybody else it's the best job in the world. And if you can jump in, jump in. And, and for those retired guys that are listening, retired game wardens mm-hmm. or officers listening, a lot of guys when they retire, they just... They, they, I don't want any part of that. I'm walking away, and 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 that's okay for some. But if you have that inkling, a little bit of a desire to try and do something, please understand that one person, one voice, can make a huge difference. Mm. I've learned that in spades. Like mm. uh, I haven't, I, I retired, but I didn't quit. That's probably the best way to word it. Yeah, um, I'm still trying to hold agencies accountable as much as anything. You know, that's that's uh, agency has to be understanding and willing to to do something. And in some cases, they make decisions for political reasons, not for the resource. And if that happens, I kind of stick my head out of the foxhole and and, uh, bark pretty loudly. And and as long as you got the facts and present it right, that sometimes you can make a change. So I really encourage people to to do their part, whether it's be a retired warden or a citizen listening, there is things you can do. One, one person can make a difference. Absolutely. Really appreciate it, Randy. Randy Nelson, the author of The Wildest Hunt. You can get yours. It'll be available. Randy kind of wants you to go to the local bookstore, don't you, Randy? Yeah, that's where I prefer <laughs> people to get it. I, I really do. You know, support local. I yeah. mean, uh, that's, that's what it's about. They'll be there forever. Uh, the big boys will just move on to another profitable venture if, if books become uh, not the most profitable. You can get it. You can get it online. You can get it um, in EE versions as well, Kindle and Kobo, uh, when it when it comes out. Yeah, encourage you. I mean, some I have uh, some people that have contributed to the book. I mailed them copies from here. I was able to do that uh, individually. Quite a few people got copies that way. So I have some too. Uh, I will be at the Nauia Convention in uh, Provo, Utah this year. And I hope to have a bunch of books there as well. And next year, Nauia is going to be in Penticton, BC, which is only a few hours from me. So Awesome. Oh. And if there's if there's some, yeah, somebody wants interest in the book, uh, get a hold uh, through you or however they want. I'm pretty easy to find. I live in Kamloops, BC. <laughs> Uh, well, and we'll put easy. your information up on, on how do you get to the book and uh, everything when we drop yeah. this podcast. So, no, it's it's been a pleasure. And 
Thank you, Randy. Thank you for doing this, and uh, thank you for promoting it. We really appreciate it. And thank you for doing what you do, too. It's important for people to hear. I hope I hope it grows and grows. So, uh, you know, the, the more it grows, the more, the, more, the more people will be reporting things, and the better the resources will be off. That's what it's about. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.